It's been a while since I may have told you, or you might have noticed that um, on our website every week, usually Scott, but this week me, that's why it was late, uploads the the songs that we're going to sing the upcoming Sunday. So if you feel like, I never know the songs, then you can look on the website a week early and find out just what we're going to be singing and practice with your kids or with your husband or wife all week long. Feels a little strange to not be in the Gospel of Matthew today. We've spent almost two years preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. I counted over 70 sermons that we've preached through the Gospel of Matthew. Quite an accomplishment, I feel like, being we're such a young church. But now that we're done with the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to spend the rest of the fall going through the minor prophets. How exciting. They're some of the most unfamiliar books in the Bible. They're the ones that you need to use your table of contents in the front to actually find. They're so small, you just flip right past them. And we're excited to take a look at the minor prophets because we want to know better the whole story of redemption from beginning to end. And you, when you're reading a story, you can't just skip the short chapters because, well, they might be boring. you got to know what's going on there, too. And we want to show how every single book, every story shows Christ, looks forward to redemption in Christ. So we're going to do that over the next few months. But before we dive in, we want to take just a few weeks, three weeks starting today, to kind of lay a groundwork of what the overarching story of redemption the Bible tells is. So the next three messages today and the next two weeks, we're simply going to give an overview of the whole story, trying to answer some of the bigger questions. Why did God create everything? What's the, what is the story and who are the main characters? And what is God's plan to accomplish these purposes in this world that we live in? So with that, we'll, better, we'll be better able to understand the minor prophets, how they fit into that story, and how we, Redemption City Church, brothers and sisters in Christ, fit into God's story as well. So before we jump into this massive undertaking, we ought to pray again and express our dependence upon God. Let's pray. God, Isaiah tells us, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And yet when we open our eyes when we're done praying, we need to be honest and say we don't see it as we ought. And so would you give us eyes to see your glory. See how you are manifesting your glory in this world. See how you are using your glory to bring joy even in the midst of darkness. God, I know many today are suffering, are tired, are exhausted, are beaten down. Give us a vision of Christ that we would hang on to your promises. We know that you will accomplish your glory filling the earth. Help us cling to those promises. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So in our first attempt to understand the whole storyline of the Bible, today we're going to first go into the first chapter of Ephesians, and then we'll jump out of there rather quickly and try to answer the big question, why did God create the world? And related to that, why did He redeem the world? Why is He redeeming you and me? What is God's purpose in all of this? So, at home, lately, we've been going through 
a children's catechism, and right away it gets into this very question. So my kids know the answer to who made you. God did. And what else did God make? God made all things. And the big question, why did God make you in all things? For His own glory. Thanks, Olivia. Many of you might be more familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism for the adults. The very first question asks, what is the chief end of man? And enjoy him forever. Wow, we got some some uh, good Presbyterian students in this Baptist church. Yes, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Or as John Piper adjusts it a little bit, changes, puts a preposition in there, glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Well, what does that even mean? These nice shortcut answers are correct, but they really lead me to ask more questions. They don't help me really understand what the purpose of God is in this world just raises more questions in my mind, like, what does it mean to glorify God? And who is this God? Who does he think he is that he demands we all glorify him? Is he some self-absorbed dictator? Or maybe some needy, high-maintenance boyfriend that needs us to affirm him all the time? Is he? What does that say about us? Are we so important that we are filling some man-sized hole in God's heart? These... I'm not joking. These are serious questions that people go can't find answers to, and it leads them away from the faith. But when we see God's purposes unfold through the whole story of the Bible, not only does it make more sense of what glorifying God means, it's easier to see how my life, how our lives together fit into this theme of glorifying God. So we're going to dive into... Ephesians 1, and use that as a launching pad for the rest of the Bible. I just mixed metaphors there. Sorry about that. (laughs) We're going to dive onto the diving board. We want to see how the main theme of the entire Bible is to glorify God. And Ephesians is going to give us a good outline for doing that. So let's open our Bibles together to Ephesians chapter 1. Some of the greatest most awe-inspiring words in the entire Bible. I'm just going to read Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 to begin with. And we'll see there the Father's plan for glory. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him when before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So, Paul is writing this book of Ephesians to the church in Ephesus in order to give them instruction on how to live. A bunch of Jews and Gentiles are now saved. They heard the good news that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And they're asking, now what? What are we supposed to do? But before he ever gets to that in chapter 4 and 5 and 6, he wants to lay the groundwork for them as we're trying to do now. So he explains to them that God's plan to redeem all things for his own glory. 
Verses 3 through 14 in Greek are actually, for you who like English language literature, one long run-on sentence. Paul loves to talk. But it's broken up into three parts, and you can see those three sections ending in the phrase, to the praise of His glory. Something like that in verses 6, 12, and 14. And if you look closer at these sections, you see that it's very Trinitarian. The first section that we're looking at right now is all about the God, God the Father's plan for His glory. And then the second section is all about the Son's work to accomplish glory. And the third section is all about the Spirit guaranteeing this glory. The whole story, all of history, is about glorifying God and us enjoying the benefits. So in these first few verses, Paul argues that the spiritual blessings we have in Christ were planned before the foundation of the world. God the Father predestined how salvation would work out at every single point in history. He planned our blessings. He planned our trials, my friends. He planned our holiness. He planned our adoption. All of it planned for the praise of His glory. So if you watch biblical history unfold, then you can see that this is exactly what God has been working towards since the beginning, since He said, let there be light. So I want to jump back there to the beginning and see how the Old Testament unfolds with the goal of bringing God glory. So turn back to Genesis 1. Keep your finger in Ephesians, though, because we'll come back to that. But we have a whole first three quarters of the Bible to cover. So I hope you packed a snack. Genesis 1 tells us the story of God creating the heavens and the earth with all of His attention. This vast universe focused right here on earth. And the crowning achievements of His creation is people. Yeah. You who feel like you're worthless, who you're too broken, that nobody appreciates you. You are the crowning achievement of God's creation. He says in Genesis 1, 27-28, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. People were made in God's image. And that means a ton of things that we've explored before and will continue to explore. But all of it together simply means that our lives are meant to show off who God is. Our lives are meant to be a reflection of His character. So in ancient times, a king would put statues of himself all over his land so that wherever you went in his kingdom, you would see a statue and say, that's what he looks like and that's whose authority I am under. But God has made living statues and we are to multiply, fill the earth so the whole world will look at us and say, that's who God is and he's in charge here. But, and then in verse 28, we're told, they're told, The people are told to multiply and fill the earth. So every corner of this planet should be filled with His image. So from the very first chapter, we see that God's purpose in all of creation is to fill the entire world with Himself. To put Himself on display all over the place. That is, another way of saying, to make His glory known. To glorify Him. But clearly that didn't happen. We know that... There's not a whole lot of glory going on in this world. 
Adam and Eve chose to ignore God's glory. And they became images of Satan. They became deceivers and liars, sending all of creation into this downward spiral of a curse. And the whole Old Testament tells the story of this downward fall. But key points along the way. God promises, I'm going to restore it. I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to fill the earth with my own beautiful image, my glory. And we see this conflict highlighted then in the next book, in the book of Exodus, where God plans to use the nation of Israel to be a new kind of Adam. Now this nation is going to put on display His glory to all the world. But in chapter 5 of Exodus, verse 2, we see there's a bit of a problem. Moses goes to Pharaoh and tells him that Yahweh wants Pharaoh to let Israel go so they can put on display His glory as His image bearers. And Pharaoh responds, Who is the Lord? Who is, who is Yahweh that I should obey Him and let Israel go? Uh, I've never heard of Him. I don't know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. God desires to make His glory known through the whole earth, through the, all the greatest and the least of all the kingdoms. And yet here we see that the greatest kingdom on earth at that time, the most powerful man in the world, has no clue who God is. This is a massive problem. And God is going to rectify that. So we see in chapter 7 of Exodus, He's going to send ten plagues. And why does He do that? You might think, well, to rescue Israel. There's a greater purpose. He says in chapter 7, verse 5, so that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. The whole point of the plagues is to let them know, I'm in charge here. He says the same thing in chapter 14, right before Israel's about to cross the Red Sea. He says, I'm going to do something spectacular for you, but it's not for your sake. It's so that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God is going to make His glory known in the world. And Pharaoh, who rebels against God's glory, will be crushed in the waters of judgment. God is glorious. And He deserves to be praised. But we act like we don't care. The world couldn't care less. But Psalm 19, verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. All of creation is singing the song of God's glory. If you look up at the night sky, even with all the light pollution we have, you can still see these massive numbers of stars. You, it should lead you to marvel and wonder, especially if you have a telescope, it becomes more clear. Our God is bigger, more powerful, more beautiful than all of that. He made it all. I read this amazing fact this week. Someone said that there are more stars in the universe than words ever spoken in human history. That doesn't seem to line up. Billions of people who've existed and the millions of words you speak over your lifetime. And yet there are more stars than all of that combined. This vast, incredible universe is singing God's glory. All of creation is singing God's praises except Earth. We're this little outpost of rebellion in this great, vast, God-glorifying universe. The heavens proclaim the glory of God, but Earth acts as though God doesn't even exist. And so he called Israel to 
be the beginning, the seed of that redemptive work that He is going to get earth to glorify Him. But Israel too joined in the rebellion. Isaiah emphasizes this tragedy of falling, failing to see God's glory in Isaiah chapter 6. Rather well-known verse among us. Isaiah has a vision into the throne room of God and he says, as I prayed, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And yet, just a few verses later, we always stop there. A few verses later, he says, People have eyes but can't see it. Ears but can't hear. Hearts but can't understand. But God promises that He is going to fill this world with people who can see it and delight in it. He says so over and over in Isaiah's book, in his prophecy. So in chapter 40, verse 5, 4 and 5, he says, Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be made low. Uneven ground will become level. And the rough places a plain, and then all the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. It's coming. 43 verse 7 says, He created everyone for His glory. 44 23, the heavens and the earth will sing when God's redeeming glory is revealed. Isaiah explains in 48 verse 11, why does God save people? For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is jealous for His glory. This theme continues in 49, 3, 60, verse 2, 61, 1 and 3, 1 to 3. He is going to save people so that they will be able to turn and look and delight in Him and praise Him for how beautiful He is. And this is where the minor prophets then fall. They are part of this failed kingdom of Israel that can't see God's glory. They're falling under the judgment, but God promises through these minor prophets, I am going to send a Redeemer that will restore your ability to see and savor my glory. He guarantees it will happen. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, perhaps one of yours too, is Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Isn't that wonderfully comforting? Whatever you're going through, whatever suffering or anxiety you're experiencing right now, you can be still. You don't need to be anxious anymore because God is in control. But there's more to that verse. Finish reading the verse. Why? What is God in control to accomplish? Just our peace? No, he says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. We don't need to be anxious because God will be glorified. What? Why is that so comforting? Because if God says, promises, He is going to do something for you for His own glory, you know He's going to do it. Because He is jealous for His glory. He will accomplish His glory. And if He wants to do it through you, then you can rest and know He is going to do it. Now, as we talk about God demanding all the glory of the world, probably leads some of you to ask a few more questions, as it does me. Why is it okay for God to demand all the attention of the world? Why, why does someone, if someone like us were to stand up and say, worship me, give me all the attention, give me all the glory, you would be right to run. Get away from me. But is God, even as 
big and beautiful as he is, isn't it selfish for him to want all the glory? Is he a dictator that demands allegiance? That is a legitimate criticism if God is singular, if he's one, alone, monastic, as Muslims believe about Allah, or as Jews who reject the Trinity do. It would be a problem. But God, we know, is not singular. He's triune. So let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and see how God continues to unfold His glorious plan. Pick back up in verse 7. In Him, that is in Christ, in the Beloved, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be for what? To the praise of His glory. So the second section of Ephesians 1 explains that all of that plan of God through the Old Testament culminates in Christ. The whole story, all of history building to this fullness of time where Jesus would be revealed as the glory of God. His mysterious will, His eternal purpose was to display the glory of God through Jesus. It all points to this man, the Son of God. His life, death, and resurrection. And if you look at Jesus' life, you see He's the only per person to ever live according to God's rules, to keep everything God commanded. He said in John 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Everything about Jesus' life makes God happy. Points glory back up to God. Look at the Father. So, Jesus prays in John 17, a few chapters later. Now, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that I may glorify You. This prayer continues showing us this amazing eternal relationship of God glorifying each other. Father glorifying Son. Son taking that glory and volleying it right back to the Father forever and ever saying, you're the best. No, you're the best. Like that annoying newly married couple that they just can't stop gushing over each other. But God has those butterflies over Himself for all eternity. Sending this love of the Spirit back and forth between Father and Son. Yes, God is radically self-God-centered. But He's not self-centered. He's God-centered, but He's other-centered. Because He's triune, the Son's mission is always to glorify the Father. And the Father's mission is always to glorify the Son. But as amazing as that is, the story gets even better. God created the world so that people like you and me can come into that eternal relationship of glory and participate in sending the glorious love back and forth. God told Isaiah that He won't share His glory with another. Because how could He? How could He share His glory with rebels who will never appreciate it? But His plan from the beginning was always to share. 
to show his glory so that other people would reflect it throughout the earth. He wants to shine his glory off of you so that you are holding a mirror and reflecting the praise back up to God so that other people can see how amazing God is. It is good and right for us all to join God in praising the most beautiful thing in the world, God himself. It would be wrong for God not to delight in himself. It would be idolatry, and then he would cease to be God. It's not possible. But Jesus came to bring us into that delight. So he says later in his prayer in John 17, verse 22, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Whoa! You've got to be kidding me. That love that the Father and Son shared forever, back and forth. You get the Spirit. Now you get the Spirit. Now you get the Spirit. We get to be brought into that beautiful relationship. Through Christ, He is sharing His glory with us. But how can He do that? Why? He's sharing it with rebels. He said He wasn't going to do that. What did He do to take care of our rebellion problem? So that we'll be able to delight in His glory again. Well, the one who said, I always do the things that are pleasing to him, is the same one who went to a cross as a condemned criminal, who cried out in Matthew 27:46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see the massive implications of that statement? The one who always did what pleased God was forsaken by God, as though he couldn't see it, as though he was a rebel against his glory. This is the good news of the Gospel. That the one who glorified God in his entire life was rejected by God so that we who don't glorify God can be brought in and receive all the blessings of His glory. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that we in Him can become the righteousness of God. We become sons of God, those on whom God pours out His affections. Just as Father and Son for all eternity poured out this love on each other because of the Son dying in our place, now we get to stand in His place and receive all that praise. God said He will not share His glory with another, but in Christ. In Christ. It's Paul's favorite phrase. In Christ. We get to share His glory. Which is why Peter writes in his second letter, chapter 1, verse 4, that we become partakers in His divine nature. We get to be brought into the relationship of God. God seeking His own glory is a promise of joy. Joy for those who become partakers in His nature because of Christ. Nothing will thwart God from receiving His glory. So if you are in Christ, then it's a guarantee that no matter what darkness crowds in around you, you have a promise for the brightness of God's glory. Because Christ earned it for us in His perfect righteous obedience. So let's just finish off Ephesians chapter 1, our text here, with the last two verses. Verses 13 and 14. And we'll see there the Spirit's guarantee of glory. In Him, again in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Again, to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit seals everyone who's in Christ so that God will get glory from us. The Spirit dwells in those who have put their faith in Him as a guarantee that we will receive the Son's glorious inheritance. So Jesus dies, He's put in a tomb, victoriously rises from the dead, and He's exalted to heaven at the right hand of God to send His Spirit to live in us. In the Old Testament, very few people got to have the Holy Spirit. And it was temporary. It was just for a little time for a certain task. Mostly we see the Spirit associated with God's glory, like the glory cloud that led them through the wilderness. The pillar of cloud and fire is like God's presence by His Spirit. Or on Mount Sinai, the clouds of thunder and lightning represent God's holy righteousness present with them. And then they dedicate the temple and the Spirit of God in a glory cloud rushes and fills the temple. But because Israel joined in earth's rebellion, that glory of the Lord departed, as Ezekiel tells us. He couldn't dwell with sinful people. But now Jesus is the more perfect sacrifice, a better high priest, more righteous king than ever. He obtained for us permanent residence of God's Spirit, God's glory among us. We, the church, are the temple. And the glory will never depart from this temple because of the purity of the blood that cleanses it. He guarantees that those who are in Christ will receive the rewards of the Son. So another one of my favorite verses, Romans 30. Paul tells of this same Trinitarian salvation project. Those whom He has predestined, He has also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. The Father predestined it. The Son accomplished it. The Spirit guarantees all of it until we arrive in glory. And then we get a sneak peek of it all in the book of Revelation. That day when it's all made perfect. All the saints gather around the throne of God And the glory that the Father gave to the Son and then the Son gives to us, we gather around the throne and give it right back to Him. Revelation 4, verse 11, shows all the representatives of redeemed humanity before God's throne singing, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things and by Your will they existed and were created. Amazing that we get to join what has been going on forever. But then the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 13, now the glory praise party gets passed on to Jesus, the Son who sits on the throne with people surrounding Him from every tribe, nation, language, and people crying out to Him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. But it doesn't stop there. We see in the final chapters, When heaven and earth become one, in Revelation 21, verse 3, the dwelling place of God is with man. With us. God gets the glory and He brings it down and says, here, share it with me. Then give it back to the Son. For all eternity, we get to share the joy that God held in Himself. The love they had together. The delight they have in each other. It's now shared with us who are in Christ. 
Friends, giving God all the glory is not bad news. It's not bad news unless you are a rebel. Unless you are a rebel to His will. To not glorify God is basically the definition of sin. Sin is acting like God's glory doesn't exist. Sin is making everything else look good apart from Him. Sin is to be delighted by anything at the expense of God. Pursuing happiness in any direction other than Him. He showers you with abundant, glorious blessings. Just as He has done with the Son. Where the Son gives it back to Him. Here we are keeping it for ourselves. That is sin. But if you repent and put your faith in Christ, that one who died as a rebel in your place, God receiving His own glory is a fantastic promise for your joy. It's not a threat of eternal boredom and servitude where we just sit on our faces for all eternity, but it's a promise of joy that in Christ you will be brought into an eternal love, eternal pleasure that existed before the foundation of the world. So what does it mean to glorify God from what we've seen? It means that we make known His name, His glory everywhere. Everywhere we go, in every part of our lives, in everything we do. We delight in His beauty, His creativity, His righteousness. We marvel at His wisdom and we thank Him for His careful care of every moment in our life. As one of my favorite teachers likes to say, we glorify God by enjoying Him. He is for our joy when He commands us to align everything we do with His purposes. Because His purpose is to bring His Son all of His glorious blessings. And if we are in Him, we get them as well. But this doesn't just inform us how we live individually. It informs how we as a church operate. What's important to us. So we have five core values here at Redemption City Church that help us decide what are we going to spend our effort and our resources on. Next week, Jake's going to preach on Christ the King as the main character of the whole Bible story, which gives us our first core value, Christ-centeredness. And then in a couple more weeks, I'll preach again. I'll preach on God's work to redeem for Himself a people, defining who are God's people that will help us cover our values of diversity and community. But our values of worship and mission are integrated into this theme of glory. To glorify God is to worship Him. We were made to worship Him, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do. We gather on Sunday to see Him, to see how glorious He is. The purpose of our sermons isn't just to give you a pep talk, to give you some doctrinal information to teach you how to live, but to show you Christ so that you are enamored with Him. And when you leave here, Whatever you do, you go to your communities, your workplaces, and you can't help but talk about Him because He is so glorious. This is our design to fill the earth with people who reflect His glory wherever we go. And so, because we know that the whole world doesn't glorify Him yet, as one teacher wrote, missions exist because worship doesn't. So we have a core value of mission. God deserves glory from us. We find our joy in giving Him glory. We find our joy in looking at each other and seeing, wow, look at God at work in you. Or look at God at work in you. 
And we want more of it. We want more glory for God so we can have more joy. So we go out into the world and find more image bearers to be restored to His image. So let's go. Let's be on mission if you want more joy. Mission is the way you will find it. Friends, God is not needy. He didn't create us because He needed us to glorify Him, because He was lonely and needed someone to love Him. He was happy receiving glory from Himself, from His Son, forever. And then the Son sending it right back and and back to the Son again. But God is like a natural spring that just bubbles up from the ground, life-giving water, giving it all over to the dry and thirsty land all around it. It's His nature to overflow. So as the Father sends love to the Son, it goes past Him in infinite amounts and we get to be the beneficiaries of that love. The best news in the world is that God loves Himself and He's made a way for you to come in and enjoy that love. He's the fountain of all that is good and He wants to share it with you. And He made a way for you to enjoy it forever. To be a partaker in His nature. You can know today, friends, that no matter what darkness you're feeling now, God is at work to shine the glory of His light in this world. Look to Christ as the guarantee that God is for your joy. If you put your faith in Him, one day, just like Him, you too will rise to glory and enjoy His presence forever. Let's pray. God, this is incredibly humbling. You saw this gathering. You planned this gathering before the foundations of the earth. You planned our salvation. And Jesus accomplished our salvation. He shed His blood for us. And His Spirit then went out and sought us out 2,000 years later and made us redeemed reflectors of Your glory. That You would pour out Your love, Your kindness, Your blessings, Your light on us. I pray, God, that You would make Redemption City Church a bright reflector of Your glory that we would just send it right back up to You as Your Son has done forever. May everything we do as a people always sing of Your glory. Every job we undertake, all how we raise our children, how we love our spouses, how we pursue our leisure, may it all be so that we can show that it is all a gift from God and He deserves the thanks and praise for it. God, I thank You for these brothers and sisters that reflect Your glory in my life so I can see You when it is so hard for my blind eyes to see. Open our eyes more that we may delight in You forever. Amen.